Welcome to EDS at Union Now. Today we'll hear from Darnell Moore. He's an author, sought-after speaker, and advocate for young people. He wrote No Ashes in the Fire and is Director of Inclusion Strategy for Content and Marketing in Netflix. He and Dean Douglas discuss how the virus has affected U.S. culture. For the video version of all of our podcasts and more content, visit our Facebook page. Yet another of our series of Facebook Live conversations on being church in time of COVID-19. I am very privileged to have joining me today one of the most significant prophetic thought leaders, truth tellers, and social justice activists, author of New Ashes in the Fire and director of Inclusion Strategy for Content and Marketing at Netflix. I welcome today Mr. Darnell Moore. Thank you, Darnell, for taking the time to join me in this conversation. And I'm privileged to have you. And as I've said to our live audience, you are one of the most significant and prophetic thought leaders, uh, truth tellers, and social justice activists of our day. And uh, your voice is such an important voice uh, to be heard. And so I really thank you for joining me in this conversation. I'm honored, honored to be here. Anytime you call, I'll answer. And thank you for that gracious introduction. Um, you know, you have been somebody had, that I've not only looked up to, but have learned from um, and count in many ways as a mentor. So thanks for having me be part. Well, thank you. It's, 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 it's a mutual admiration yes. of society going on here, but so much to cover and such little time. So let's get started. I typically, Darnell, start these conversations with a question about being church in this time of COVID, but I want to do a little improv today Okay. And set the cultural context first for that question. This COVID crisis, as we all know, has revealed underlying and ongoing injustices and inequalities in this country that have, in fact, defined this country from its very inception. The injustice and the inequalities, yes, reflect systemic and structural racism, but I think perhaps more insidiously, they reflect white supremacist cultural realities that are a part of the DNA of mm. this nation. And so what we are seeing in terms of the disproportionate impact that this virus is having on black and brown communities is to so many of us, not surprising. Yet, to many folks, it is surprising. Mm -hmm. So let me first begin by asking you, what do you think about that? Yeah, for sure. It's um, it's interesting because as I started to tune into the conversations, there's been a lot of headlines about um, disproportionate impact. Um, and people had, like you said, been very surprised at that, particularly on media outlets. Right. Um, and for many folk who have been um, thoughtful and, and, and honest and study, <laughs> and by study, I don't mean in formal ways, but have been um, very discern like discerning of the ways that white supremacist um, culture, the ways that structural inequities work, um, you would have known that those folk would be the ones most impacted. Um, in so many ways, I, I think what you're speaking of is sort of the way that white supremacist culture began, like wants to create sort of a facade of what is, or at least um, is this idea that, you know, I always say that white supremacist culture is this culture that feeds on lies, not truth. <laughs> 
right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and that sort of becomes the grounds through which we begin to discern these things. But like, yeah, I wasn't surprised. I, I have a, I, for me, look, my mom is um, a wage worker who is working with seniors at, um, in a, in a uh, culinary division of a senior's home. Um, and I just thought about her reality as just a microcosmic lens into what this looks like. It looks like her going to work Right. One, because she cares and because she loves the singer she works with, even if she's an hourly wage worker who's underpaid, who goes into work in the midst of a crisis without enough equipment, who sees a sign on the door that says, if you have PTO days that you have, you can't use them. Wow. <laughs> right? Um, so not only are you already underpaid and overworked, um, but you're now put in the middle of this crisis as a black woman, right? Who lives in a particular part of the world. Um, and like that, when you think about stories like that, and I think of so many of us have these stories that is intersectional sort of analysis materialized. We see this happening and it's like my sister who's working in a school, black single mom, who's told that the way that you can keep getting paid is if even if you can't come and you got to figure out how to give you get some hours on here virtually, despite the fact that you got to take care of kids, despite the fact that you need. So these are lived realities for so many of us that um, a culture, a white supremacist culture will have us believe are somehow um, one don't exist or somehow this is sort of like phenomenal, <laughs> spectacular, right. when in fact they are very mundane ways of being um, and structural inequities for so many people. That's right. So very well said. And, and this reality of all of the sudden, we're talking about essential workers who have essentially been non-essential people in, in our society, right? For, exactly right. <laughs> I like to say <laughs> essential non-essentials. Let's, let's talk about another aspect. And just as you talk about the lies and the myths uh, that emerge in terms of really trying to hold in place white supremacist culture. And, and again, acting as if these things are phenomenal. But one of the things that has also emerged is, which is no surprise, the reality of blaming the victims. <laughs> uh, uh, and so what we have seen is that, of course, people talk about the fact that particularly African-Americans are more likely to have some of the comorbidity uh, uh, health concerns. Uh, then others have then said, well, so they should change their diet uh, uh, as if, well, I'll, I'll let you speak to that. Uh, <laughs> others have said that, well, they need to uh, take the advice and shelter in place. And first of all, they don't have the luxury of sheltering in place. Uh, but uh, what we have seen in terms of polls and other surveys is that the African-American community has taken this virus more seriously than most other communities. And so we see this phenomenon again of blaming the victim. Can you speak to that? I mean, blame the victim is like the easy game. Right. I mean, when you blame the victim, you don't have to be honest about the problems that ex that are exacerbating so many of the social and medical conditions that we name. Um, it's easy to blame them. And we blame the victim, whether that is a sort of a disaster that is a pandemic or a, nat a natural disaster or natural disaster that was uh, sort of enabled by our human era in something like the Hurricane Katrina. Right. Right. Nola. Um, 
So, you know, I think the easy route is to, to sort of put the blame, as always, right, on the backs of the folk who are impacted by structural inequity. The harder thing to do, I always say it's easier to name <laughs> whose feet are on our necks. It's harder to name when our feet are on, on people's necks, right? That work requires that we actually be honest about structural inequities and how they come into being and how they are differently impacting people. And it means so many of the people who are out here, whether they are at the president's bully pulpit, those surrounding him in the cabinet, um, business, I mean, so many of us would have to look at how white supremacy, uh, patriarchy, I mean, classism, greed, I mean, we can go down the line, limited access to health care, to health um, care, wellness, et cetera, et cetera, ableism, <laughs> are the things that we should be focused on, right? Not the people upon, um, the, not the people who are being impacted by those things, right? The victims in this case are the survivors in this case. We ought to be looking at the, the, the sort of issues that are, have exacerbated these conditions. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, it should reveal to us, as you, you've just said, to really tell the truth about what kind of nation that we are and recognize that we've never had a democracy. I mean, uh, we, love, we love to lie. You know right, I, mean? <laughs> I know. So speaking of loving to lie, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, the Make America Great Again phenomenon in relationship uh, to this, because we also know that there have been as well emerging a uh, number of conspiracy theories, particularly out of communities of color, the uh, black community, that this becomes now a shortcut in a convenient way to quote unquote, make America great again, because all of us who are people of color knew what that meant the moment that mantra was uh, pronounced. And if people didn't know what it meant then, they certainly know what it means now, four years in. So I'm not a conspiracy theorist. However, when <laughs> in many respects, the fears that uh, people of color are having and the African-American community is having are legitimate when we consider the history of the relationship of the black community to medical science, for instance. We think about the Tuskegee experiment. When we think about forced sterilization of black women and programs such as the one that took place in North Carolina between 1929 and 1974, not to speak of the protocols that are being established to treat patients with COVID, such as the one in your hometown state of New Jersey that seems to favor uh, young white males. So the conspiracy theories aren't so far off, uh, at least the fears are not, when we began to see how this disease is disproportionately impacting uh, communities of color. Can you speak to that? I just really appreciate you laying out like historical perspective and context is so critical. Um, and what you said is right. I want to parse out fear mm -hmm. from conspiracy because That's at the right. root of this is a mistrust of, of not only public health institution, but the state to be responsive um, to the needs of black and brown folk, black and brown and indigenous folk. When in fact, in so many ways, we have historical proof um, that the state has colluded in, um, you know, the, the, the harm and in, in many, in the destruction of communities. So I get it. And I want to, that's fear. And often when we think conspiracy, we, somehow we think that there isn't any lucid um, sort of cogent critique 
um, latent in that uh, in that fear, but there is. And the thing I'll say about just this MAGA, I mean, like I often say, you know, people will die, men will die for the patriarchy. <laughs> and, and white folk will die for, you know, the, those who who are so enamored by white supremacy will die for white supremacy. I mean, we'll be out here marching <laughs> and always sort of like under the guise, like, again, lying, never, ever really telling the truth. These marches aren't about the need and desire for folk freedom and liberty. Um, and wanting their states to be open for the sake of the economy. This is about, um, as always, in the same way that the election was, um, a veiling of a truth that people desire for whiteness <laughs> to sort of be. And I mean, like, like, I wish people were more honest about that, but folk will, like, we will be out here and putting our lives on the line for, for, um, for racisms, um, for, for sexisms, and this is what we're seeing right now. And it's, it, it, I get so upset, you know, um, even looking at some of those images of people just outside um, without mask on, with like, like really going against <laughs> the sort of rules that we are putting in place to keep folk who are vulnerable. That's right. From That's being right. harmed. And here you are out here, yeah. Yeah, let's, let's talk, yeah, I, I, I'm so, <laughs> let's talk about these protests for a moment and as you brought them up. First of all, it reveals just what you said, this cultural quote unquote, if you will, divide in the country. And the cultural divide I'm talking about is not North, South, not red, blue, not uh, uh, a political divide. It is about a divide between, yes, what we, our aspiration toward a democracy and white supremacy. And, and so you are so right and nothing brings this into relief more than the fact that you have people out here marching that mm. are saying instigated by an administration that has said, liberate your states. Mm -hmm. These people are marching with guns strapped across their chests in a state like my uh, hometown state, which is Ohio, it's an open carry state. So they're marching in the streets and on state capital property with guns strapped across their chests. Mm -hmm. Some of the some of these protesters, not all of them, you always gotta say that, some of these protesters are waving Confederate flags mm -hmm. and other kind of uh, really uh, anti uh, kind of dehumanizing uh, symbol sure. yep. and hateful symbols. That's the word I'm looking for, white supremacists and hateful symbols. And so you're seeing these show up at some of these protests. So you know that it's more than simply wanting to go outside. Yeah. Uh, uh, this liberate your states, what is the underlying message of that? And we're calling these protests patriotic, yet all Colin Kaepernick did was take a knee. Okay. Uh, right. And protest for people who were suffering from the injustice and inequalities uh, in, in, <laughs> in this country. Speak to that. I'm just about to give an offering. <laughs> <laughs> You, you know, it's, it's, it, I would say it's baffling, but again, I think, you know, we see how, like it's for, for folk who black, brown, like, look, these, these are, we understand that these are calculated, um, sort of at calculated projects that sort of, and, and they, 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 it's, it's a reiteration of the same old, same old. 
you know, a pinning on to whether that is sort of a political a moment, politicizing a pandemic, um, weaponizing a pandemic. That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, for the purposes of, of continuing to sort of reassert, um, continuing to insinuate and reposition whiteness mm -hmm. <laughs> as that which we ought to protect, white That's bodies right. as that which we ought to protect an imagined white nation as that which we ought to be striving to make. And like, these are things that like, and, and I get so wary of, I mean, if, if you're gonna be, look, I say to love is to not lie. <laughs> now, now I'm gonna say amen. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> if you love, if you, you know, to love our country, as Baldwin says, right, is to That's tell right. the truth it's about it. Tell the truth. Um, and if you're really patriotic, and, and I mean, listen, I'm, look, tell the truth about what you're out here trying to do. This is That's not right. <laughs> about right. any sort of sort of um, you know idyllic notion of what it means to have one's freedom to be able to move about. It's not about mobility in that way. This is about whiteness. That's right. That's right. That's and I right. would love for people to be honest about that. And see, and this is, that's right. And, 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 and you've got this Episcopalian saying amen to that because that is precisely right. And one of the most frustrating things for me is that people are not telling the truth. The institutions that you would expect to tell the truth. I don't expect anything from the leader of MAGA. I do expect a little bit more from the media and I certainly expect more. I certainly expect more from faith communities and from the church that there has to be moral truth-telling leadership in this country if indeed when this pandemic passes quote unquote that we aren't going to go back to the way things are because the way things are normal is protecting as you said whiteness at the expense of the bodies of people and the lives of people of color. So can you speak, you went to seminary, can you, and, and are deeply co uh, connected to faith communities. Can you speak a bit about the role of the church mm. and faith communities in this, in telling the truth? You know, it's interesting. I, I um, we've been thinking a lot and, and along with some others about what it might mean people, you know, I don't want, I keep saying, I don't want to return to normal. That's right, that's right because normal is precisely what got us here where we are. And I wanna talk about the church's quote unquote, universal's complicity That's right. in maintaining that normal. That's right. In colluding with, you know, um, sort of theologies that feed on or at least, you know, are baked in uh, white supremacist, hetero, patriarchal, capitalist, sort of militarist understandings. Um, or even if not at that level, colluding because of silences. That's right. Um, you know, unwillingness, not inability, unwillingness in most cases to remain silent about um, all of those structural inequities and that we've that we've talked about throughout this. Um, and even like, so when I think about church in this moment, I actually think there is a, an occasion for the church to be what it is meant to be in a That's moment right. like this, That's right? right? To live into being church, you know? <laughs> like, okay, now we can be church, right? Right, right. Now we can be the ecclesia. Right. We can actually um, rise to the occasion of one, offering a type of prophetic response. That's right, that's Number right. Number one, two, being at the forefront of ensuring that those in our communities, however they might exist in the world, are cared for, are cared for, 
not just having for mega churches to have Sunday service online. That's right. With different people singing all over the place so we can send our tithes and our offering so that your checks can be fat so you can keep keep paying your mortgage. Right. right? But so like I wanted where these I mean, build some of these big church buildings could have been turned and the spaces where people could be sleeping and resting and being fed and being cared for. That's right. Let's and let's let's talk. That's exactly right. That let's talk about that for a moment in, in relationship to one community in particular, but one again. I say amen to that, and it's time for the church to, I always say we that we call ourselves churches aspirational, so mm-hmm. it's time to grow in to what it means to be church, and that doesn't have to do with a building. It has to do with, I'm, I'm always so amazed, Darnell, by particularly the Christian faith community that has a daggone crucified Savior at its center. <laughs> Yeah, and he didn't get crucified because he prayed too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he was crucified because he indeed stood against the kind of white supremacist structures in his own time, in mm-hmm. solidarity with those people who were on the very underside of, as 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 uh, Howard Thurman would say, the disinherited. Yeah. And that's the opportunity to be church. But what about these buildings? We're talking about communities homeless. that are most vulnerable, and particularly LGBTQ youth, Mm -hmm. who no one seems to be talking about now, but they find themselves in one of the most vulnerable uh, positions, typically have lack of health care, as do others, but also 40% of the youth that are homeless in this country today, at least 40%, are LGBTQ and non-binary youth and they don't have a home to go back to Mm -hmm. uh uh, and so these are ways in which these buildings that call themselves church could make themselves available to some of the most vulnerable that can't shelter in place can you speak to that yeah i just you know yes and it's interesting in that um, young people um writ large but particularly um queer and trans and non-binary young people we've not talked enough about the particular vulnerabilities that they must um, move through. Um, You know, in our pre-conversation, we talked about Trevor um, Trevor Project. They have, they just did a recent sort of look at um, mental health vulnerabilities for LGBTQ youth, um, particularly youth of color, and in places like big cities like New York, for example, um, where so many of our young people find themselves houseless and in need of community. You know, beyond just the physical needs, I'm also thinking about, you know, I worked with young young people uh, at Hetrick Martin Institute for many for several years, and in Newark, um, in New York City. And one of the things that was key to me was the way that they found they the space, physical built environments, um, became particularly spaces that were catered for them, mm-hmm. um, became a counter to the sort of the type of denials and violences that they experienced either in homes should they have had them or on the streets. So community is so essential. And in a moment like this where social distances is what we are practicing, I'm really mindful of how that community building, that that connectivity has been disrupted. And what that means for the well-being and mental mental health of young people. Um, Where are they? And I mean, where are they literally physically? Um, Where are they spiritually? Where are they? And I'm not sure that that many of us have assessed that 
Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, and uh, the last thing I'll say too is something that, not just for LGBTQ youth, but I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts about this. This moment, while we have so many access points to new media technologies, and we thrive and talk all about how new media brings us together, it is so essential that what we're learning is the power of human connection, of touch, of intimacy. People are like, I can't wait to get back out there and get a hug. I can't wait to get back out there and eat brunch and drink mimosas. I <laughs> miss it. I ain't even want to go to brunch, but now I do. And when I think about that with regards to young people. That's right. That's right. That's right. Who really need um, to be in some t in, in spaces with one, particularly LGBT and, and non-binary young people. Um, it's I, I think how particularly profound that can be for them. And that, that's really been at, on my heart. No, I, I, you raise a very good uh, concern, important concern and issue. And yes, first I want to commend Trevor Project to people yep. uh, and to connect with the Trevor Project, particularly in, in this time uh, for the many issues that they raise. And the things that are also going on that we aren't noticing, states passing anti-LGBTQ yep. uh, laws uh, while they can do it, while everyone's focused on this. But I think that you are really right. We have to be concerned about the impact on youth, this kind of social distancing, particularly in young people who are growing up and, and just coming into their own. And we know the significance of mm -hmm. relationships yep. and coming together in community to development, to emotional, psycho, psychological, and otherwise development. And so I think that this is something that we really need to be concerned about because mm -hmm. this generation of youth and younger people, school children, uh, will be impacted in ways that we can't imagine. And yes. so you're, you're very right. And then those who are already most vulnerable uh, will be even more impacted. Yep. Darnell, we are coming toward the end and I just got to get in a couple last questions and, <laughs> okay, cool. and, and let you go because you are, as I have said, you are the director of, uh, what is it? Uh, Inclusion strategy. Strategy and content and marketing for Netflix. So yeah. I, I can't let you go without <laughs> saying something about Netflix here. So two questions okay. and, and I'm gonna put them together for the sake of time. One, everybody's watching Netflix, right? Uh, and so, uh, and, and Netflix is, it's, you know, you're working there. So I'm gonna say it's, it's, a, it's a good platform or they wouldn't have <laughs> So, but I can't, everyone's also watching, speaking of cultural wars, everyone's also watching Tiger King. And I, I'm trying as, as a black woman, <laughs> you know, trying to figure out what that's all about, uh, to, that phenomenon and what that says about who we are and, mm. and not only in this time, but as we've said, but what it is revealing about who we are. Mm -hmm. And then the second part of that question, take a time, what? We, we've talked about the role of the church mm. and others and uh, this, not only at time of this crisis, but in responding to what we're discovering or what some are discovering about who we are as, as a country. What's the role of a, a platform like Netflix? What's their responsibility in this kind of truth telling that you're speaking of? For sure. Um, you know, I, I uh, my partner loved Tiger King. I, I didn't really make, <laughs> well, I didn't really make explain that to me. <laughs> I didn't really make it through. I think, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, phen a phenomenon, a 
cultural production phenomena in that um, particularly the timing of its release um, and the profundity. I mean, there's so many parts of it that I don't necessarily connect with, <laughs> um, but I think it's something around these uh, windows into these different type of white lives. <laughs> um, white working class, white queer, like white trans, like it's an interesting, and I mean, it's, 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 I mean, there's so many layers yes, yes. there that, um, that we, that could be critiqued. So many things to think about, but I do think it was one of those things that like a, a virtual community rally around a thing. Um, and whether or not people had like the sort of lenses of critique on, like it was the rallying around this very strange, weird thing about animals kind of, did this husband getting eaten by, like what is all this, you know? It's like reality, reality show at times 10. Um, so that was something strange and spectacular. And I'm using spectacular, not in a sense of like uh, storyline, but like in the way that people galvanize around this cultural production. Um, and a, a whole manner of people, a cross section of people. So I don't even know about that. That what I just was like, I wasn't even wanting. But what I will say about our role, one of the things that we talk about at the company is, you know, we exist to, the company always talks about, um, to bring members joy, to increase members joy. Um, and I love that, um, partly because it says something about the power of art and entertainment um, mm -hmm. as a means of not only bringing people together, um, like now they have like Netflix watch parties people are having and, folk wherever they're around and around the globe are connecting over shows. Um, you know, we have local content creators and by local, I mean working within markets around the world, um, trying to reflect the stories from those regions um, in a way that's representative of authentic sort of uh, ways of being in those regions that is pretty phenomenal. And um, part of that is because we know in order to increase members joy, members ought to see themselves, they ought to see their stories. Um, and, um, and that's how you do it. That's the, that's the vision for, for I think the company is to be better positioned, um, to be reflective of the many uh, types of ways of being lived expressions, um, uh, peoples um, that we touch through our work. We ought to, they ought to see themselves reflected in the work as well. So Darnell Moore, you are as fierce <laughs> as I've always known you to be. And you speak and you get insightfully and incisively to the truth. And for that, I will always appreciate and champion your voice. Thank you. And there is no more significant of the time for us to hear from a person like you than the times in which we now find ourselves. And so I want to end this conversation by asking you, what is the message you want to leave us with? Yeah, um, I, I, I said this earlier, but you know, now is an opportunity for us to, as Robin D. Kelly, D.G. Kelly would say, right, like uh, to sort of lean into our freedom dream. Mm. You know that you know it talks about this with the black radical imagination, but normal we can't go back to. Um, and maybe to ask ourselves who we ought to be, who we will be as people, as individuals, as collectives, um, as, a, as a nation state, if, as, a, as a world. Um, I'm, I'm all about dreaming what that might be. Thank you. You know, it's not 
how about how bad it can get, but you have reminded us that it's about how much better mm. we can become. Thank you, thank Sir you, Elmore. thank Thanks you so much. All for joining us. And I invite you to join us tomorrow for a Facebook Live conversation with Mr. David Giffen, who is the executive director of the Homelessness Coalition in New York City. And we'll be talking with him at 2.15 tomorrow. So I invite you for that. And thank you for joining us for a most insightful conversation. Thank you. Thanks.